0: This morning's reading is from Nehemiah chapter 2. So I arrived in Jerusalem three days later. I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey I was riding. After dark, I went out through the valley gate, past the jackal's well and over to the dung gate, inspect the broken walls and burned gates. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. So, though it was still dark, I went up the Kidron Valley instead, inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered again at the valley gate. The city officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. But now, I said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. They replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. But when Sanballat, Tobiah and Jeshem the Arab heard of our plan, they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king? they asked. I replied, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall but you have no share, legal right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. Thank you,
1: Ollie. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this word. Thank you for this church. Thank you, Lord, for all that you are doing in our midst, both now and the plans that you have for our future. Lord, as we turn to this word, we pray you'd encourage us. Help us to join in with what you're doing, and remind us today, Lord, of your strength and your purposes, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Evan, for those of you who don't know me. Uh, it's good to be with you. Um, I have got the joyful task of talking to you about this passage from Jeremiah. Last, what did I say? Uh, something Maya, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, Nehemiah, well done. Thank you. Just testing. Last week, Claire talked to us about, was it Nehemiah? Yeah, yeah excellent. Uh, about praying and praying and praying again. And today we're talking about we're doing this. We've got to the point of the story uh, where Nehemiah is going to crack on with his plans. So we're going to have, be having a think about that. But first, I do need to do a bit of uh, background work. I can't see the screen, so have we got a screen? Here we go. So I want to do a bit of background. I missed Ron's talk from a couple of weeks ago, so I don't know how much of this he's told you. Uh, But we're going back in time. This setting, this book, is from around about 450 BC. So doing a bit of maths, very rough. They're missing a few years here and there. It's about 2,500 years ago. So it's a long time ago. Anyone around then? No. Um, So it's a long time ago in a land far, far away, with people with very strange names. So last week Claire uh, was very excited about getting Artaxerxes right. It's very impressive. I've been practicing that all week as well. Lots of peculiar names in the book of Nehemiah uh, because they're from a culture that's totally alien to us. Languages, places, times, a long way removed from Sunbury in 2017. But something that's really important, or really interesting at least, is that when you listen to scholars and read books by clever people about Old Testament stuff, they're always arguing about who wrote this and who wrote that and whether the name of this book actually belongs to a person who really existed and so on. With Nehemiah, One of the interesting things, at least it's interesting to me, is that scholars are universally agreed that there was really a bloke called Nehemiah, and that this bloke called Nehemiah really wrote this book called Nehemiah. I don't know why they particularly agree on Nehemiah, but they do. So it's good news for Nehemiah. He really existed. I happen to think that all the guys we read about in here really existed, but at least the scholars are with us. Let's move on. Now this story isn't set in some settled peaceful time. This story comes at the end of a, a rubbish time for the people of God. And I want to give you a bit of a, a quick overview. I'm going to miss out loads of chunks and probably get some stuff modelled up. But at this point in the story of the people of God, things have really gone south for them. It's not been good news Let's go right back in time. Beginning of the Bible, God creates the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, and everything's lovely, and then they stuff it all up. They get kicked out. There's people like Abraham knocking around and Noah. Do you remember that? Noah's story, the ark, the flood, the animals what happened? Well the people of God, well they weren't really the people of God then, just the people God had made, had been rebelling and sinning and God thought let's wipe them out and start again. Noah was saved, the animals with him and his wife and kids and their wives and they went off in the ark and they started all over again. And so began a pattern. Do you remember the tower of Babel as well? Do you remember that story from Sunday school? where the people all came together and they thought, we're amazing, we can do anything we want. And they started to build a tower to reach up to heaven and God thought, well, oh, that's not maybe so clever. And he modelled up their languages and scattered them across the face of the earth because they started to get arrogant in their hearts. And that is the story of humanity, where we get arrogant before God. We think, we don't need God. And as we read through the Old Testament, we see that pattern happening time and again. People get arrogant and God... I suppose smites them in a, in a godly sort of a way, uh, things start to go pear-shaped when we start to turn away from God. When we think we can do things in our own strength, the Old Testament teaches us it's not so clever. The people of God find themselves in Egypt as slaves and then what happens? the plagues on Egypt and the people of Israel, well not people of Israel yet, they are led out of Egypt, the exodus, Moses, Aaron, starves, Niles, blood, frogs, locusts, remember all those things? God leads them out and leads them on a journey to the promised land. On the way they grumble and moan against God, they turn their hearts against God again, arrogance we can do this without God they think he's rescued them but they've got better ideas and so they wander around for a whole generation never making it to the promised land but finally they get there they get to the land flowing with milk and honey and they start to live as God's people in the promised land and things should be good shouldn't they but they're not because their hearts turn against God repeatedly The story in the Old Testament is of this people of God constantly thinking, we can do this without God. We've got this far, look at us now. We're a bit fed up of him. Let's just do it on our own. And Every time, it's whack. Everything falls apart. Things go south. Where we've got to with Nehemiah is the long end of that story where sometime in the past, God removed his providence, his care, his protection from the people of Israel because their hearts were so rebellious against him and the land of Israel was invaded. Jerusalem was ransacked and God's people were carried off into exile in Babylon. Now a long way down the line, All the politics of the Middle East have had comings and goings and comings and goings and uh, King Cyrus has given way to Darius, has given way to uh, Artaxerxes and there's been successions of fathers to sons and there's been overthrows of one government and power to another. But when we join Nehemiah, we are in the realm of the Syrian empire which ruled over 44 million people. And one tiny component of that empire was the remnant of the people of Israel. The people who had in their hearts this love for a place called Jerusalem, which I shouldn't think Artaxerxes even had heard about or cared about. The empire was so vast and so huge. And Nehemiah had in his heart to restore the glory of Jerusalem. Now before him, if you flip back, before Nehemiah you get to Ezra and there's the story of rebuilding not the city but the temple the temple was where the people of God worshiped God and the city of Jerusalem with its wall was what enclosed it and protected the temple so the story of Nehemiah is the story of him wanting to rebuild the city walls and bring glory back to the whole city of the people of God are you with me There we go. That was a masterclass in the Old Testament history. Let's move on. So there is a bit of confusion amongst scholars about Nehemiah, as Afia said. He is considered by some to be the shortest man in the Bible. I'm here to tell you today, I'm sorry, that is incorrect. So this is what some people say. There's a normal-sized person, and here comes Nehemiah. So he is known as Nehemiah, you see. But actually, if we look in Job chapter 8 and verse 1. Where's Job gone? Somebody find Job for me? Have i have gone the wrong way? Yeah, I've gone the wrong way. Esther to Job. There we go. Chapter 8 and verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuhite replied. <laughs> so here's Bildad the Shuhite. He's actually the shortest man in the Bible. Right, let's go back to being sensible. Nehemiah. So Nehemiah has got to the point where he's convinced Artaxerxes to send him off with letters of recommendation back home to a place he I don't even know if he'd ever been to before because it was such a long time since the exile had happened but a place that he knew and loved a place which was on his heart in his identity back to Jerusalem and there he sees that the walls of Jerusalem are broken down now in those days it it's not a good thing if your walls are broken down. And these days, if you've got a bit of uh, damp in your walls, or your pointing needs doing, then that's bad news, and insurance companies aren't happy, and uh, you need to get the builders in, and so on. But in the time of Nehemiah, if your walls were broken down, you had no protection at all for anything. Think back to the story of David and Goliath. What did David bring Goliath down with? Stone in a sling. Why did you have a sling? was it for fighting giants? What was it fighting for? Wolves, and lions, and bears. It was a dangerous world. There were animals that would kill you. If you've got no walls protecting your city, you can't sleep safe in your bed at night. They didn't have double glazing. They didn't have nice mortise locks on their doors. If you want to sleep nicely in your bed at night, then you at least need a strong surrounding wall around your compound, your town, your village, or your city. If you want to stop the other nations, clans, people who aren't the people of God, people who want your patch of land, want your hilltop, want your farms, want your wealth, then you need city walls to protect yourself. There were no police forces, there was no UN, there was no, uh, no law and order. It was kill or be killed you needed walls for a city to thrive if you don't put in the work in the protective foundations of where you want to live then you will not live there you will not succeed you will not grow you will not prosper the walls were vital to the future of Jerusalem and so Nehemiah says come on let's go and rebuild who does he go and rebuild with have any of you got Bibles? Can I ask folks at the back, would you mind bringing some Bibles out to people? Because I really do want you to have a look at some stuff with me, if possible. Sorry, I should have said this at the beginning. That would have been really helpful. I'm going to uh, flick forwards to Nehemiah uh, 7. We're not going to be looking, we're not looking at Nehemiah 7 in this course of talks, are we? Clear? No. So I'm giving you a sneak peek of what happens next. This is one of the lists in the Old Testament. If you read through the Old Testament, you will often come across lists of names and places and things. And if you're a normal person, then you will flick past those lists because they're very boring to read. This is one of those lists in Nehemiah chapter seven. And this is who Nehemiah was refilling, repopulating, repurposing Jerusalem with. Says the list of the men of Israel. This is verse seven of Nehemiah seven, and then into verse eight. The descendants of Parosh, two thousand one hundred and seventy-two, of Shephatiah, three hundred and seventy-two. I'm not going to read all of them. Don't worry. Of Ara, six hundred and fifty-two, of Pahath Moab. 2,818, of Elam, 1,254, of Zatu, if you're ever looking for baby names, by the way, (laughs) there's some really good options in the Old Testament. I wasn't allowed Methuselah for any of my children, of Zatu, 845, and so it goes on. To give you ballpark on the figures, some of those are in the hundreds, some are just into the thousands, and some of them are in the tens when they're looking at the names. Now, if you've got Bibles, flick back with me to 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles is in many ways one of the most boring books in the Bible because of its preponderance of lists. Many, many lists. If you like lists, if you're an accountant you like numbers, then you will like Chronicles. So we're going back in time to happier days. So 1 Chronicles chapter 6, this is just for comparison. I'm not going to read all of these out, but Just from the tribe of Levi, the sons of Levi, Gershon and Kohath and Merari, the sons of Kohath, Amram, Izar, I've got a friend called Izar in Israel actually, Hebron and Uziel. And so it goes on. There's lists and lists of names after names of generation after generation of the Levites in the temple. And the temple musicians, if you check, click to uh, chapter 6 verse 31 these are the men David put in charge of the music in the house of the Lord after the ark came to rest there they ministered with music before the tabernacle the tent of meeting until Solomon built the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem they performed their duties according to the regulations laid down to them here are the men who served together with their sons from the Kohathites Heman and his wife, she the musician, the son of Joel, the son of Samuel, the son of Elkanah, the son of uh, Jeroam, and so it goes on. And if we flick now chapter 7, just starting in chapter 7, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puer, Jeshub, Shimron, four in all, the sons of Tola, go down just a couple of lines. It says... The descendants of Tola, listed as fighting men in their genealogy, numbered 22,600. That's the number of fighting men just from one family. And I have got page after page of families. The number of fighting men ready to go to war, 17,200. That's just from the sons of Bilhan. This is before the exile. Tens, hundreds of thousands of men and women populating the city of Jerusalem. After the exile, Nehemiah, those names those names and numbers added up to a handful, a remnant, a tiny few number of people. So flip back to Nehemiah with me. And when we join Nehemiah in this story today, we're not up to chapter 7. Because in chapter 7, what we're looking at, those names we're reading out, they were the people that came back from exile after Nehemiah himself had started the work of rebuilding. And so we're in Nehemiah chapter 2, where Nehemiah is on his own. And he's looking at these walls. And there is no one there to help him. But he has a vision He believes in what it can be. He believes in what it should be. He's not looking at a city with teeming streets of people. There isn't a temple full of thousands of musicians. There aren't tens of thousands of fighting men from every family waiting to protect him. There's just him and a donkey and a couple of people in authority with him looking and thinking, wow. No, mate, your big end's gone. Got no hope here. But Nehemiah believes. Why are we looking at this story? Why bother? Why bother to go back two and a half thousand years to a time so far away with people with such strange names, to a history that's been forgotten, a language that's not even spoken? Why bother? We're in 2017 in Sunbury a long way away from Nehemiah. And there is a reason why we're looking at this. There's a reason why we need to remember the ups and downs of people in their relationship with God. Because God does stuff. God does stuff. And that's what we're looking at in this story. We're looking at a story not just of Nehemiah. It's not just about Nehemiah doing stuff. We are reminded in this story that even when you are away in exile, when everything's been trashed, when everything has been ruined, don't give up hope because God does stuff. And The thing about faith is that we believe that we need God to do stuff. People without faith today believe that they can do all the stuff that needs doing. That's atheism. Humanism believes that we are amazing, majestic, wonderful people, and so we are. And like the people before the Tower of Babel, we can build great towers. We can reach to the heavens and we can land on the moon. We don't need God, do we? If you're a person of faith, then you think, well, actually, we are quite cool, but God is cooler. We need God to do stuff. And sometimes people believe that that's all they need to think about with God, is just that, well, I'll do the stuff that I do, and when I get stuck, I'll ask God to do the stuff that he does. Let's let God do the stuff that I can't get right. That sounds okay, but there is something even better God's people together working as one with God. What if God had a plan of the stuff that he wanted to do and what if we thought to ourselves, hey, let's do God's stuff with him. Let's not just do the stuff that I would do on my own for myself according to my plans and my purposes. What if just for a moment we thought, Let's get together and let's do the stuff that God is wanting to do. Wow. What would happen then? What would happen if the people of God came together as one and worked hand in hand with God? I think then we could achieve the impossible. Just as Nehemiah achieved the impossible with those walls. Because it wasn't just Nehemiah's idea, it was a passion that God had put on Nehemiah's heart and enabled to happen. I've got no idea what's coming next. That's right. It's not about democracy. Of course, we do know all about walls that get built when democracy is followed, it's not about a dictatorship. Sometimes democracies seem to lead to dictatorships. It's about loving trust. So Ron has laid out for us this idea about transforming this building. And we don't really know yet what those plans are going to look like. I don't even know if Ron really knows yet what those plans are going to look like. And in this story in Nehemiah, Nehemiah has not shared with the people around him, what his plans look like. It says so here. He says, uh, verse 16, chapter 2 of Nehemiah, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet, I'd said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. He had a plan, God-given, and he hadn't yet started to share it. Well. Ron has been brought in as the vicar here to lead this church. Claire's been here a while. And she talked last week about how there's been plans and ideas for ages. But there's still stuff unfinished. And there was a a sense from some years ago that the time was not right and we had to wait. But now the time is right. What do we do as a community together to move forwards into God's plans? We can talk about it till the cows come home and we'll all have a hundred different ideas of what the right thing to do is. Or we can trust. Not just let Ron be a dictator because that's not his style and tell us what's going to happen and that's it. But to pray together. As Claire was saying last week, to pray and pray and pray and trust and trust that the people that God has put in charge to lead are hearing and listening and receiving the details of what God wants us to do. And then to join in together. I've been in so many churches where that's not happened. Where someone's got an idea and 20 other people have got 20 other ideas and, and other people have got half-baked ideas and no one's really interested unless their idea is what happens. That doesn't work. That's horrible. Let's not do that here. Let's talk stuff through. Let's thrash stuff through. But when push comes to shove and when we get to the point of saying, let's go, this is where we're going, this is what we're doing, let's just say, I trust, I love, I'm committed, I'm in. Let's go. Look with me in uh, verse 18. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. There's stuff there about the spiritual direction of God and also the practical provision and tick boxes and preparations that are needed. Two things working hand to hand, the spiritual and the practical, the political and the divine, working hand in hand. And we need to do that as a church as we move forwards. But this is the really exciting bit. In the NIV version that you've got, it says this. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. It's a really tiny little line, which is monumental in what it's saying. Virtually no vision, no detail, just an idea we need to rebuild. There's no provision, hardly. There's a remnant and most of those are still far away at this stage but the few people that Nehemiah had said okay let's get to work. In the ESV version it doesn't say let's start rebuilding it says there instead let us strengthen our hands or let us ready our hands for what's coming next. And I think it's fantastic that what's been given out of the door today and sent through emails in the last weeks or uh, two or three weeks is this skills audit. That, for me, is about us strengthening our hands of just saying, okay, who are we? What have we already got? We haven't got an army. We haven't got hundreds of thousands of people. We're just us. But who is us? What does each of us bring which tribe which family do we come from are we musicians are we fighting men are we the artisans are we the builders are we the planners are we the the administrators who are we each of us what do we bring to this purpose and this vision what do we bring to this plan moving forwards that skills audit is vital for each of us to do because every one of you is hugely valuable There's only room for one vicar, that's great. That job is covered, praise God for Ron. But what about you? And you, what about you? What do you bring? Because there's not that many of us and we've got a lot to do. The skills audit is vital. We need to strengthen, we need to ready our hands for the task that lies ahead. It's not gonna be all about us building something, but we need to grow. We need to grow in our ministry. We need to grow in our impact. We need to grow in what we're doing as a church. We've got debt recovery. We've got food banks. We've got worship. We've got life groups. What else do we need to be doing as a church to impact this community, to see kingdom growth as we prepare this building for that growth, for God's purposes, As we strengthen these city walls, it's not just about a wall being built, it's about a community thriving within. It's about growth, sustained, protected, beautiful, life-giving growth, generation after generation. It starts with the walls being transformed, but the walls are all about what's happening inside. So who are you? What do you bring to the table? We're not asking you to do your stuff. We're asking you to bring your stuff and join it in with what God's stuff is going on already. So Nehemiah finishes this passage by saying this. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. I don't know if you heard at the inauguration speech, but Donald Trump said, and God will protect us. really okay I don't know about that but I do know that when people pray humbly when people offer like the little boy with his loaves and fishes saying, well I, I can't feed everybody but this is what I've got when we listen for God's voice and we wait for an extended period of time as Claire was saying last week and we wait for God to say now and we offer, and we're ready, and our hands are prepared, then I do believe that God will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. As Ron would say, are you all in? I hope so, because I'm here, because I'm excited about what's happening next. And I hope that you will be too. Us. Us. Together, with God, together, in this place, we've got an exciting future. I don't know what it's going to look like, but it begins by rebuilding these walls so that the community within can thrive and grow. Amen.